you know, we're studying through the gospel of, of Mark. We're going chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And now as we look at verse 30 in Mark chapter 6, I need to kind of remind you a little bit about where we've been since we took sort of a week off. But a few weeks ago, we studied this passage of scripture, which is usually called the sending of the 12. And this is where Jesus appoints his disciples as apostles and sends them out in power and authority to minister in all the towns of Galilee. Now, you, you and I may not realize this, but in ancient Galilee, there's somewhere around 200 towns over a of 33 square miles, and there's about 85,000 people in that ancient time. So if the disciples were divided into six teams of two, the Bible says he sent them out two by two, so there's six teams to cover 200 towns, you have to imagine that at least took them three to five months In fact, when you study the gospel of John in chapter six, some of the scholars that I read said they were gone for six months. So think about a mission trip where when Jesus sent them out, they all knew we're gonna be gone quite a long time. This isn't a two-week trip. This is six months. And so now what we're about to read is when the disciples come back from that trip and they're excited and they're rejoicing and they begin to tell Jesus all that they saw and all that they taught. And that's where we pick up the story here in verse 30. So you can read with me either in your notes or in your Bible or it will be on the screen. But here's what the Bible says in verse 30. The apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while, for there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. The people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and it's already quite late. Send them away so that we may go into the surrounding countryside and the villages and they can buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them and said, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and look. When they found out, they said, we have five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves and giving them to the disciples to set before them, he divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate and they were satisfied and they picked up 12 baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. And there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you've been around church or you've been around the Bible any length of time, you know this story. It's uh, usually referred to as the feeding of the 5,000, and it is the only miracle that Jesus performed that is found in all four gospel accounts. Now, what that means to us is that it stuck out to the gospel writers, and they felt like we've all got to write this in to the record of the life and the ministry of Jesus. It's a very important text. It's an important story, and we need to understand it for what it really means, because I've preached it before at least, I don't know, a dozen times. I have preached from this text or a surrounding text, a parallel account in another gospel. 
And I'm sure you've heard this story before, but as I was dwelling on it over the last two weeks, I begin to think about something a little bit different than maybe I normally do. And I started to see that there are different portraits of Jesus in the gospels. Now I'm sure you can see this because sometimes when we like look at the cross, we think of Jesus as our savior. When we read the accounts where Jesus healed someone and there's some amazing stories about what Jesus did when he laid hands on people and and the sick were healed, but we think of Jesus as a a healer. Now, last week we looked at his resurrection and if you read the book of Revelation, you think about how Jesus is a king. I mean, it is undeniable that he is the king that is going to return. But for some reason, and and I wanna share this with you how I got there, I began to read this story and I thought of Jesus more of as a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And I see Jesus shepherding people throughout this story. Now, if you look in the dictionary, you're gonna read the first definition of a shepherd is someone who takes care of sheep. You know, the those sheep, right? But... Because we use the metaphor of shepherd so often in society, and we have for thousands of years, the dictionary, the second definition, and other ones as well, they actually talk about the nature of a person and not just the function of a person. So a shepherd, even in the dictionary, is not just what someone is, but it's what someone's like. And so here's the second definition in the dictionary. A shepherd is commonly thought of as a person who watches and or watches over, cares for, guides, provides for a person or a people. See, it's not just they take care of sheep. It's that this is the way a person actually is. So when we think of Jesus as a shepherd, what we're saying is Jesus is the one who protects us. Jesus guides us. He cares for us. He watches over us, all of us as individuals and as his church. And wouldn't you know, in John chapter 10, Jesus says of himself, I am the good shepherd. He's not just a shepherd, he's the good shepherd. That means that Jesus is caring for you and I. Jesus always does that and he always will. He does a better job than anybody ever will. And aren't you thankful today that Jesus is your good shepherd? Maybe you need to be reminded of that in church today. We need to encourage ourselves that if we don't know where to go and we don't know what to do, we've got a good shepherd that always knows what to do. He knows where he's leading us. He knows what to say. He knows the wisdom that we need. He can provide for us if that's where we are today. He's got us. And isn't it it awesome to think about how Jesus has us and we're in his hands. Thank you to shepherd Jesus. Now, I, I looked at this story and I thought of like four principles at least, as I thought about how Jesus is shepherding the people in this passage. And I want to share them with you today. And the first one starts in verse 30. And that is this, Jesus led his disciples to a place of rest. Look at verse 30. The apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest. For there were many people coming and going and they did not even have enough time to eat. And they went away in a boat to a secluded place by themselves. Now, understandably, when the, Jesus, when the disciples returned to Jesus from their long mission trip, they wanted to rejoice. And I'm sure that they were. They were ecstatic. They were excited. And I'm sure they were rejoicing in, in at least two different ways. The, the first way they were rejoicing was that they didn't lack anything that they needed. 
Do you remember what Jesus told them before they went? Hey, listen, guys, you can't take a bag with you. You can't take food with you. You can't take money. And the more he said they couldn't take with them, I bet you the more discouraged they sort of got. But that wasn't the point. The point was, I'm going to make sure that you're taken care of wherever you go for the entirety of this six months. And so when they came back, they were rejoicing that they never lacked one good thing and that Jesus was right. So they're rejoicing in their provision, but they're also rejoicing in the transformed lives that they got to see. I mean, for five straight months, they went from town to town and they preached the kingdom. They healed the sick and they cast out demons. Now that's incredible, isn't it? I mean, if there's one thing I'm addicted to, it's transformed lives. I love to see people's lives changed. Every time I see a heart turn to the Lord, every time I see a person baptized, every time I see a person repent and receive the forgiveness of their sins and their life begin to change, even if it's a small change, it's exciting to me. So there is a healthy addiction to have people, come on. And that is to see lives change. Come on, souls saved and disciples made. I'm addicted to that. So whatever your addiction is, maybe you just want to change it over to another one. <laughs> Pastor Ben said there's healthy addictions. You're right, I did. But the next thing that Jesus says to them as they're rejoicing is this. He says, guys, that's awesome. Come away with me to a secluded place to rest. I love what you're talking about. You guys look exhausted. You guys look happy and excited, but you look exhausted. So come away with me to a secluded place and let's get some rest. And Mark gives us a little bit of detail. You know what he says? He says, because there were so many people right there, even when they came back to Jesus, that they didn't have enough time to eat. Can you imagine a scenario where you don't have enough time or space to eat? There must have been quite a crowd around them, even at that time. And Mark felt like it was important for us to know that. Jesus wanted them to rest. Now, the word rest here means what you think it does. It means to permit one to cease from labor or movement for the purpose of recovery. How many of you know resting isn't just sort of kicking back and doing nothing? Resting has a goal. It's so that we could recover. It's that we could be replenished. It's the idea that you and I work five days or some of us six and a half days. <laughs> we work five days and we're supposed to take a day off. But the point isn't that we just do no work. The point is what we get out of that rest, that we are able to be replenished, to be restored and renewed so that we, when we go back to whatever we were doing, we're refreshed and we can put our strength to it. Now, that doesn't mean that all of us feel that that's what happens on our day off, but that's for another sermon. But this is, the, this is the idea. Jesus is shepherding his disciples right here. He's caring for their souls. And isn't that good to know that Jesus is caring for their soul? He's like, guys, listen, all the stuff that we've been doing, it's awesome. But you know what? We need some rest. And Jesus knew this because the gospels tell us 13 different times where Jesus would go up onto the hillside and he would even stay there all night to be with the father. Now today, I'm not gonna ask you when the last time you had an all night prayer meeting with God was, but I would tell you, we probably need less me time and more Jesus time. Every now and again, a person will say to me, I need some me time. I'm not really sure what that means. I'm not very encouraged when I spend more time with myself, if you know what I'm saying. I need to, <laughs> you know, I need some less me time. I need some more Jesus time. You understand? I, I think that's part of what rest uh, is, is about for us. And I'll tell you this, Jesus is the one that can give you rest. He actually said this in Matthew's gospel in chapter 11 and verse 28. Look what he says, come to me, 
all you who are weary and heavy laden. Now stop right there. If I did an altar call, everybody would come forward. Come to me. Come to Jesus, all who are weary and heavy laden. That's me. How did he know? (laughs) We all know. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke, put, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls, not just your physical bodies. This is an inside job. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, when we talk about rest, there are two extremes. There's a polarity here that we have to acknowledge. When it comes to ministry, and that's what they're doing. They're ministering. And all of us minister, whether that's, you know, formally speaking, or that's to our neighborhood, our friends, our family, our coworkers, or whatever. We're all in ministry if the Spirit of God lives in us. He's compelling us to give away what Jesus has given to us. But there are two extremes. And the first is, is that it's possible that we could rust out in ministry. Now, this refers to inactivity. If you park a car for five years, which we see them here and there, you park a car for five years, what's going to happen eventually to the car? It's going to rust out, right? Because of why? It's not being used. It's not being cared for. It's not being washed. But there's also another thing that can happen. You can burn out. You can rust out from inactivity and you can burn out from overactivity, but both of them are bad. But look what Jesus says in Mark 6 and Matthew 11. He says almost the same thing in a different way. He says, come away with me in Mark chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 11, he says, come to me. See, that's the whole point here. Jesus is like, he's the common denominator. Come to me. Come away with me. Don't just take a break. Don't just take some time off. Come to me. I'm the one that can give you rest for your souls. And that's what the Sabbath is all about. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, God gave Israel a Sabbath. Sabbath was a day of rest. And what we did, well, what the people in those days did at least, and we're all good at, is taking something that God gives and turning it into a rule, sort of a badge of spiritual honor. And that's sort of like, did you keep the Sabbath the right way? Did you do it? Jesus came and said something super practical, which we studied in the book of Mark already. He said, man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for man. He had to actually tell them it wasn't about a rule. I actually wanted to help you get rest because human beings aren't good at it. God had to institute it in the law because that's how hard it is for us to learn how to rest. Our rest comes from God. So resting in the Lord teaches us a lot of different things. And he wanted the disciples to get that. One of the things that I've learned when I practice this, which I do imperfectly, (laughs) I must admit to you today, let me tell you all the secrets of rest, which I have not learned. I, I I want to tell you something God wants to teach you in resting not for prolonged periods of time per se, but but learning how to really rest in the Lord is that he's always at work even when we're not. That's something that we have to learn because we trust the Lord and not just ourselves. It's so easy to trust that if we're in control and we're the ones that have our hand on it and we're the ones steering the car, that, that somehow we're the ones that are actually doing all of this. But when you take a step back, what you have to do is trust that God is at work even when you're not. Now, say amen if you need to learn that a little bit more in your life. All right, that was hardly what needed to happen there, but... Do you have Jesus' time in your life? Do you have a resting place where you 
find more and increased time with Jesus, I, I want to encourage you toward that because what you'll find in that place of being more with him is the kind of rest that actually replenishes you so that you and I have more to give to the people around us. You're going to give, 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 give. And at some point, you and I are going to give out. And that's when we burn out. And Jesus wants us to learn how to take a step back and receive from him all that we need. And he always gives us enough to give away to others. That's what he wanted the disciples to know. The second point of shepherding, I think we see from Jesus here, is Jesus showed compassion to the multitudes. Look at verse 33. The people saw them going and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and they got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. So here's what happens. The, Jesus and his disciples, they get into a boat and they sail towards Bethsaida, which is about three miles away. Now, we know from the other accounts that this is the home of at least three of the disciples, possibly four. And so the people are coming for ministry, and somehow they slip into a boat, and the folks on the shore where they were previously recognize, oh, they're going away. And so I don't know what this sort of looked like, but in my mind, I kind of play it out like people are kind of starting to run on the shore, and they run so fast that they get to the place where Jesus and his disciples are going before they do. They outrun the boat. I mean, it's just a funny thing. I don't want to play it out in front of you because number one, I can't. Number two, that's not a memory I want to leave you today in church. But this is what it's like when needs are pressing. You'll do things that you never thought you would do. Their needs were pressing and the people started to run. They wanted to be around Jesus. And you know what happens? By the time Jesus gets to where he's going, the crowds have, have they were swelling to the point where it now is the largest crowd of people that Jesus has ever ministered to. And it actually becomes the largest crowd that Jesus ever had in that ministry context. He's taking his disciples to rest, but they they were interrupted by the needs of the people. The plans were interrupted, but there's something we have to see in the midst of this. In fact, there's a couple things just even in this picture right here in this first few or this second part of the passage, and that is Jesus is a good shepherd. He's trying to shepherd not only the disciples, but when he looks at the crowd, he wants to shepherd them as well. When Jesus looked at the crowd, he saw them and he felt compassion. And this means that he was moved from the inside. It doesn't just mean he felt a certain way. It means he was moved to action. When Jesus wanted to supply what they needed physically, it had everything to do with what was going on inside of him. He felt compassion. And so it moved him to do what he ended up doing. Now, there's a parallel here, and I don't know if you thought about this during this passage, but in Psalm 23, David gives us some compelling language about the Lord, and I, and I think it fits in this uh, Psalm 23, verse 1. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want he makes me lie down in green pastures. What is Jesus about to do? He, he has him to sit down in what? The green grass. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters and he does what? He restores my soul. How does he do that? He does that in rest. He Here's the good shepherd always seeking the best interest of those that he is caring for. Jesus is our shepherd. He cares for us. He wants us to know that today. He's got us. 
Even if we feel alone, even if we feel like nobody sees us or or we've got things in our life nobody knows about, Jesus knows about them and he knows how to shepherd us right right where we are. Well, he's not only our shepherd, I think there's something else in this particular passage that we need to see. It's that he's an example of how we ought to feel concerning other people. It says he felt compassion on the crowds. Now, this is just my suspicion. I think it's fair, but I don't think the disciples felt the way Jesus felt. You with me on that at all? I think when the disciples saw the people running along the shore, they thought, oh no. I hope they trip. I mean, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I, didn't. I, hope, I hope they don't know where we're going. I hope that they don't make it there. I hope that we go a little bit farther than three miles. I don't think the disciples thought what Jesus thought. And when they got to the shore and they get out of the boat, my opinion is that the disciples got out of the boat and went, oh man, here we go again. Just when I thought we were gonna get some rest, I was excited about what had happened, but I was looking forward to some rest and barbecue. And it looks like we're not going to get any of that. Jesus saw them as sheep without a shepherd, but the disciples probably didn't. And I think Jesus becomes our example where we too need compassion to be restored in our own hearts and lives. Isn't that true? And maybe that has gotten robbed from us, a situation that occurs in our life and it causes a bitterness. Did you know the flesh will take every opportunity to rob from us our love for people? Don't ever think for a second that an interaction with a person that creates unforgiveness and bitterness won't also leak into how we see and feel about everyone else. The reason why unforgiveness and bitterness and these circumstances that sometimes, you know, oppose us or get in the way of of, of who we are called to be. And then we have to grapple with that. And we must grapple with forgiveness. We must grapple with love and we must grapple towards a place of compassion is because if we allow ourselves to be stuck with one person, the flesh will take that every opportunity to spread that to every person. It's just how it works. It becomes a prison, but the good shepherd is interruptible. I love that about Jesus in this story. He's interruptible. And, and I think that if we don't allow ourselves to be interruptible, perhaps we'll never see the supernatural. We want God to move in power, but we're not interruptible. Do it on my time, amen. Come back when I have some time. And that isn't always the way that it works. How we see people in and around our lives is the foundation for what we're about to do and what we pull from God. When we get more involved into the lives of people, what we're gonna find is a place of helplessness. God's not helpless, but we are. In other words, we get to the end of our resources and now we have to pull on God to do something that we just simply can't do. But it starts with what's going on in our heart. If we don't see people with compassion, we're not gonna get involved in their lives. If we don't get involved in their lives, we're not gonna know their needs and feel a sense of helpless where the resources outweigh, the, the, or the, the need outweighs the resources that we have if, if, if we don't get involved in people's lives. But it starts with what goes on in the inside. I would ask you today if you're interruptible. Is your life interruptible? I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you don't have plans or you don't make schedules or, you know, all of that's really important in the world that we live in. But can anything interrupt our lives? Do we have space where we can stop and see people and have compassion and see the need and minister to what's right in front of us? Is that possible? Does God have that type of access to our hearts if he wants to flow through us toward the lives of of other people? I think we could start today by asking for more compassion. 
You know, I don't know what you felt when Medard spoke about the refugee crisis, but here's what I would say to you. If you felt nothing, ask God for compassion. I'm gonna stop right here. If you felt nothing, ask God for compassion. That's what we need. We cannot read the newspaper. This is the Bible, picture it as a newspaper, sort of sacrilegious, sorry. If you read the newspaper, it's like, oh, another person dies. Oh, another situation happens in Tacoma. Oh, another thing going on in Federal Way. Oh, another thing going on at the schools. And then we just sort of get either frustrated or upset and we go automatically to like, oh, they need to clean up the schools and oh, it's the government's fault and blah, blah, blah. But there's just no compassion that comes out of us for the families that just lost someone, for the people that are going through a certain thing, for the needs that are in our community. If, if all we feel is like anger towards the, the big people that are in power, if that's what we feel, friend, I would tell you, we need some compassion to be restored back to us because we're the people of God. We're followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't spend one moment getting angry at Caesar. He knew who he was. He knew what he was about and he knew what to do. We know what to do and we know what we're carrying, but it requires compassion so that we can have some action in our lives where we see the need and we go, God's got that. He can do something about that. We're not supermen and women, but we are people that know that God's got an answer. We may not know what it is yet, but we know Jesus can minister through us if we're available and interruptible. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. So pray the prayer tomorrow. Not today. You got to pray about, think about this. Lord, I'm interruptible. Inconvenience my life. (laughs) You don't have to smile when I say it, but pray it tomorrow. Inconvenience my life. Make me interruptible. Give me back my compassion. Help me to see what you see and do what you would do. Jesus wants to shepherd us into places of compassion. Would you agree with that today? So more, Lord, give it to us. The third point is in Jesus' shepherding is he mentored his disciples in the miraculous. Look at verse 35. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and they said, now I'm gonna do this the way that I think it in my mind, okay? This place is desolate and it's already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, and I love this, you give them something to eat. Now, I don't think that interaction happened however we picture it in our mind. So I'm gonna try to play this out, forgive me. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go check it out. And when they found out, they said, well, we've got five and we've got two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties and he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, he broke the loaves and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people and he divided up the two fish among them all as well. Here the disciples come to Jesus with what I think is fair logic. They say to him, look, Lord, it's late and the people need to eat. Park right there. They're talking to the Lord. Okay, he's the one who silenced the wind and the waves, raised a girl from the dead, commanded legion out of some, I mean, they've seen some significant things, amen. So now they come to him like he's just not aware of what time it is and that people actually have this thing called hunger. And so this is my personal assumption based on their recommendation because I think their recommendation is almost assuming either he didn't know or he didn't care as much as they did. It really makes them look like we really care about the people. Lord, we, we, we so care about these people. We just want to make sure everybody gets food, Lord. 
we want to make sure. Now, you might disagree with how I'm going to say this, but he responds to the disciples, and I think he does it for a reason. He says, oh, really? You guys care so much. Give them something to eat. And it tells us in John 6 that Philip was the apostolic delegate. He was the one that came to Jesus and said this thing. And now Philip's the one having to grapple with this. You give them something to eat. And I can just imagine him going, uh, excuse me? And the whole committee, the apostolic committee is over here, you know, and he's the one that comes to Jesus. And then he looks over at the apostolic committee and he says, I'm sorry, come again, Jesus. What was that? He says, you give them something to eat. And then he looks back over at the apostolic committee and he's thinking, Lord, let me remind you, uh, it would be about 200 denarii. That's a year's worth of wage. Uh, the median income in federal way is like 55 grand a year. So just picture, it's like $55,000. And in John chapter six, it says about Philip, Jesus said this to test Philip's heart. That's why he did this. Now that doesn't seem fair, but he's trying to get at something. He did it to test Philip's heart because Jesus knew what he was going to do. And he wasn't asking Philip to bring him back a spreadsheet with a financial plan on how they were going to do this. He was trying to pull something out of his heart because it was already there. It looks like he's concerned. The, the apostolic committee is really caring about the people. We've got to disperse them because there's no way. We don't have the money. We don't have the bread. And we're miles away from where the food is that could actually serve these people. But he was testing Philip and the disciples, not based on what they had physically, but what they believed supernaturally. Every miracle starts with a problem. You wouldn't need a miracle if there wasn't a problem. So it's funny to me sometimes people are like, Lord, we want to see more of the miraculous. If you want more of the miraculous, you're going to have to have more needs. You're going to have to have more need for healing, more need for provision. I'm not sure if we know what we're asking for half the time. Oh, we're just a church that's about sign wonders and miracles. That means you've got a lot of needs. We need God to step in and intervene, which is absolutely true. But Jesus is mentoring them into the miraculous because he responds secondly by saying, how many loaves do you have? What do you have? What do you have? They're focusing on what they don't have. They're stuck in what they can't do. Essentially, they're saying, we can't feed the people. And Jesus says, what do you have? How many loaves do you have? And I, I wanna tell you today that our response in places like this as disciples of Jesus Christ matters. When there's not enough, when we don't have enough. See, the good shepherd, Jesus, was and is mentoring them in a sense because there's coming a day where he's not physically going to be with them and he wants the disciples to know that the ministry and the need will always outweigh the resources that they have. You're gonna always be in a place at some point where you're not gonna have enough where you can't fix the problem. And it is in that situation where you've got to learn not what you have, but who you have. And when we learn that, then we understand that miracles come from the heart and the power of Jesus because we are finally in a place where we're pulling on God to do what we know we can't do. There's something to be said for people that live in a place of desperation. I don't want us to feel bad. Like if you are in a place where you don't need to pray per se for provision or you're healthy or whatever, but can I tell you, that doesn't mean that the person to your right or to your left is. And can't you see how the compassion and the needs are connected? Because even if I don't need, my friend does. 
And this is what Jesus' ministry and life is all about. It's not always about us. We can't read the Bible and look at us as the central figure because sometimes we just, we're numb to the thing that Jesus wants to do to us because we're thinking we're good. But the reality is he, now he wants to do it through us. And if we're numb to that, we're not available for the rest of the ministry that Jesus is trying to mentor us in. God knows what we have. He knows what we don't have. But do we know what he has? Do we know what he has? Well, there are situations that help us to understand it. So look what Jesus does. He commands them all to sit down in groups of 50 and hundreds. Now, if you do the math, that's about 200 to 300 groups, 15,000 people, 5,000 men, and perhaps 10,000 women and children. 15,000 people, 200 to 300 groups. I have no idea how you organize this. Please don't ask me. I have no clue how to get everyone to cooperate. I mean, to me, that's part of the miracle, don't you think? I can get barely, can you even get a household to cooperate? No, you sit there, you sit there. Stop touching that. What you do? What? You guys even think about this? Oh my gosh. But it says that he commands them. And I think he had to command them. <laughs> he couldn't ask them or invite them to, hey, would you please? He commands them. It says, he commanded them to sit down and the disciples lined up. And it says, look, they have, now I, I brought to you, I don't know if this is a barley. No, I went on, JerusalemBarleyLoaves.com, and uh, you don't believe me, do you? No, that's in Hebrew, but in English, it's called Fred Myers, and, um, and so, uh, you know, you're with me on that, but this is about how big it is. It's, it, it, some people say it's six, six inches. I, it, others say it's small, like a biscuit. Anyways, this is close. That's why I like Cheesecake Factory. They give these away for free. Look, there's stuff flying all over the place. I just, I just want you to picture this. Jesus says, how many do you have? Now, we'll leave the fish aside. I couldn't do that. It's, it's a fishy situation. I couldn't. It's forgiveness. There's... They bring, them, bring him five of these. Now, do the math with me. There's 12 disciples. There's two to 300 groups of 50s and 100s. There's a lot of people. And the disciples line up. It doesn't give us the exacts here, but I'm giving you the picture that I think is fair. The disciples line up, okay? And so they have to go to all of these groups. He's got five loaves. And essentially, if he's going to break them up, it says that he's giving to the disciples. So he's basically doing this. He's only got five of these. So even if he were to break them in half, the disciples don't even get half. You don't even get half to go to these groups. Now, there's a reason why they felt a certain way about this. Now, the scriptures do not tell us how they felt about this, but I'm going to tell you how I think they felt about this. So here's the disciples lined up, and Jesus goes, all right, Peter, here you go. Or just here's Philip. Here you go, Philip. And Philip goes... He just watched, he just watched Jesus break it, and the other, the other gospel account says he gave thanks to the Father. He gave thanks for what he had. He broke it, and then he gave it to the disciples. And Philip gets it, and he goes, you think you want to pray again about that? We want to, let's pray again. Because here's what happens. It, it would take a lot of faith to, to do the first, the first walk. Here's Philip. He's just walking slow. Will you take a little bit? Less, this a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit. It's about right. Yep, that's about right. Now somebody's gonna take a lot more once. Somebody's gonna. So, 
going to take a lot more there, you know. And you're just going to, all right, okay, I'll come back. I'll come back. And this is what I think happened. That'd take a lot of faith to do that, right? You're at one group. At one group, how, are you, how far are you going to get? You ever think about this story? It's crazy. I think what happened, by the time they got to the one group and it got down to small, that's when it started to grow. I think it grew in the hands of the disciples. I want to tell you something. It didn't grow. It was blessed in the hands of Jesus, but the miracle happened in the disciples' hands because it was blessed in Jesus' hands. Friends, that's the reality. When we give Jesus what we have, he gives it back to us, he multiplies it, and that's where miracles are born. If you don't get, yeah, amen. If we don't give Jesus what we have, if we keep it back, we're never gonna see the miraculous. If we don't step into the lives of people, see the needs, have compassion, moved in action towards them, give Jesus the, the meager means that we have, he's gonna give it back. To, if we don't do that, we're not gonna get it back and get it multiplied. It's just not gonna, we won't see the miraculous. And to me, in our world, what that looks like to me is, is prayer. And I wanna tell you, there's a lot of things that are against us when it comes to the miraculous. This is why it's so much easier just to read the Bible and to be a student of the Bible. I know the Bible really well, but it doesn't mean the Bible is functional in our lives at all. It requires faith to believe these words, not just a smart mind. You can't get a degree in the miraculous. You can't get a degree in faith. You have to apply yourself. You have to give yourself. But there are things that are stood against us. I face them and so do you. And one of those things is that we always think that we just don't have enough. When God wants us to do something or we see the needs and they're overwhelming, like what Madar talked about, how do we help the refugee crisis? We just give God what we have. And God will multiply it and he will use our church to not only place refugees, but help them come to Jesus. And before you know it, they're the ones helping us come to Jesus. God will multiply it because it, it blesses it in, in his hands. There's something set against us. And I think there's a, a, a picture of this in Luke 17. You've got to see this. It, it's just such an important principle when we think about how God uses us and how he's mentoring them as a shepherd and he wants to do the same thing for us. In Luke 17, check this story out. Jesus is approached by one of the disciples and Peter it is. And Peter says to him, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? You remember this story? And he goes... Seven times? How about that? Because that's, the rabbis taught three. And so Peter, Jesus, remember when he said, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the Pharisees, right? You won't enter, enter the kingdom of God. So Peter's like, okay, uh, the rabbis teach three. I'm gonna forgive seven times. What do you think about that, Jesus? And Jesus looks at him and goes, 70 times seven. And he went, he didn't have an iPhone, but he just, he, I, that's, uh, that's crazy. You know what the disciples said when Jesus said 70 times seven? He says this in Luke chapter 17, verse five, the, or the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. I, I want you to see this. Jesus said 70 times seven. They thought seven was good, 70 times seven. And, and they said, increase our faith. In other words, we can't do that. We need you to give us more faith. There's no way we can do what you just said. And Jesus responds to them. He said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, 
Now remember, I showed you mustard seeds before, right? I'm just gonna take one of these little seeds. If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, must have been right next to them, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. If you just had a little bit and you did something with what you had, you would be able to do great and mighty things that you can't even believe right now. What's Jesus saying? You don't need more. You just need to do something with what you have. But there's something, a problem that we struggle with, and that is, is that when we get into a situation, we tend to think, I can't do anything about this because I don't have enough. And Jesus looks at us and says, you don't need to have a lot. You just need to give me all you got. And if you have me, you watch what I'll do. He's trying to get his disciples to understand this, and I believe he wants us to understand the same. This is not about what we possess in the natural. This is what our faith is attached to when needs are presented. That's what he's trying to get us to capture in in this moment. He says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can take that. And if you plant it, you watch what happens when I water it. You're not going to have a tree grow up. You're going to have an orchard because I'm the common denominator. I can do what you can't do. If you don't start with what you have, then you won't see the multiplication of more. Friend, I don't know how you came in today or what you think of yourself. You don't have to think highly. You just got to give it all to Jesus. You just got to give it all to Jesus. Lord, whatever I am and whatever I have, I give it to you. Do something with it. Do what you want. Don't hold back. The biggest problem that we have is we hold back. Would you agree with the, can you say amen? Is that true? That's right. One of the biggest problems we have is we, get, we, we don't give the five loaves. We, get, we give two. How many loaves you got? Peter's over there like this. No food in the sanctuary. Sorry, broke the rule. I don't know, Lord. I think we got about three and a half. About three and a half. He's like brushing his teeth as he walks up. <laughs> about three and a half, Lord. The last point, I'm still eating. That's great. (laughs) Some of you are going to Cheesecake Factory after today. I was slightly excited when I saw that they sold the Cheesecake Factory bread at Fred Meyer's, but that's neither here nor there. The final point, Jesus provided food to satisfy the hungry. Now, it's a very simple point, but I want to land here. Look at what it says here in verse 42. They all ate and they were satisfied. That's amazing. I mean, that's the conclusion of the miraculous. They all ate and they were satisfied. They didn't have a little bit. Like I gave a little bit to these guys. They all ate and they kept eating and they kept eating until they were all satisfied. And they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. There were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Mark just wants us to know there were 5,000 men, 15,000 people. I want to make sure you know this is a miracle. It's incredible. Everybody was satisfied. That boy that showed up with five loaves and two fish had no idea what Jesus could do if you just put your lunch into his hands. Incredible. The good shepherd always provides for us. And to be honest, the, the, the text is telling us that we need to trust Jesus to always care for and always provide for not only us, but everyone around us. If you don't think you have enough for yourself, you'll never think that what God wants to do through your life will be enough. That's where we have to start. If you're struggling with what God can do for you, if you need provision in your life and you're struggling with it, I just am telling you today, put it at the feet of Jesus. 
If you lost your job and you don't know where the rest of your money is going to come from, you may have lost your job, but you didn't lose your source. The job is just the means in which God uses to minister to us. But when we lose a job or when we change careers or when something looks bleak in our life, we never lose our source. But that's the trick, isn't it? To get our eyes focused on the things that happen to us in this life as though that is all there is. And it is not all there is. Jesus is transcended. He's, he's, above, he's above it all. They started with enough and they left with too much. That's just what God does. In fact, I boldly tell you today that you may come in here today with not enough. And I'm not saying we need to believe God for extravagance. That's, that message is overplayed. What I'm saying is he'll take care of us. And like the proverb says, if we water other people's garden, then our garden will be watered as well. Jesus said it this way, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things that you worry about, I'll take care of all that too. All you got to do is seek first the kingdom of God. If we get this right, he'll take care of everything else. He's always telling us these things, but they continue to become hard in the world that we live in. And so we just reorient ourselves around the word and the ways of Jesus. But if Jesus is your shepherd, then he is also your source. If Jesus is your shepherd, he is also your source. So what do you need? I mean, I didn't need bread today, all right? I just, <laughs> if there's one thing I didn't need, it was bread. But there are a lot of other things that I need. What do you need? You walked in here today and you can't say you don't have needs. You do have needs. You have emotional needs, relational needs, financial needs. It's not wrong to come to Jesus. In fact, it's absolutely right to put into his hands where we are and what we need. Lord, this is what I need. A regular dose of humility is super important for us. We're not independent people. I know our individualistic society would like to tell us that we're self-made people. We are not self-made people. We did not get here by ourselves and we will not be sustained by, alone. It will not happen. We have to learn to depend on Jesus. And maybe you're in a situation today where you have to depend on Jesus. And I'm not minimizing that pain and that hardship and how that feels, but I wanna tell you, if, you look, if we look up, instead of just on the situation, we can look at our five lows and go, there's no way. But if we look at God and we give him thanks for what we have, we'll see that he'll provide what we need. Sometimes the difficulty is we just don't give him thanks for what we do have. And we look over it like it's not enough or it's not much. And I think one of the beautiful pictures in this um, is that Jesus takes the bread. I'll just go back to it and close here. Jesus takes the bread and it says that he, he, doesn't, he doesn't look at the people at this point. He doesn't look at the discouraged disciples. He looks up to the Father and he gives thank, thanks and he breaks the bread. What does that remind you of? Fast forward to the night that Jesus was betrayed. He gives thanks to the Father. He breaks the bread and he gives it to the disciples. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of me, why? Because I am the bread of life. His message to us is not that he will provide for our needs. It's that he is the answer to everything we need. It's not just that he'll give us something. It's that he gave us himself. And it's always more than enough. He wants us to know that today. Do you know that if you have me, you've got everything? You got everything in Jesus. 
the good shepherd. What do you need? God has the answer. He is the answer. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me today? And before we start to pray, can we just give a, a little praise break? I, to, I just want to thank him for a moment. Thank you. Just thank, Father, thank you. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for the bread that you've given to us. Thank you, Lord, that we have food on our table. We have a place to live. Thank you, Lord, that we have the freedoms that we do. Thank you, Lord, for our friendships. Thank you for our church. Just thank him for something. There's something to give God thanks for. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning. Father, we give you thanks. You're worthy of our praise. We, we come into this place and we gather around you as your people and we give you thanks. Worthy is the Lord, worthy to be praised. You alone are deserving of our praise. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you hear our prayers. Thank you that you're listening to the cry of our hearts today, not just for our lives, but also for our kids, our parents, our family, our friends, our community, the refugees that we're thinking about that we get to help with. Father, thank you that you care about all of it. You are the good shepherd. And today we come to you and we, we bring our needs. And I ask you in this room, if there's anybody that needs a job, anybody that needs finances, anybody that needs healing, anybody that needs hope, anybody that needs encouragement. Father, I pray that in the name of Jesus, you would come today in such power, Lord, that we would be awestruck by your heavenly supply. You are the one that can supply what we need in Christ Jesus. We don't look at our meager means. We look to you. Thank you, Lord. We bring to you our five loaves, our two fish. We bring to you our hearts, ourselves. We give to you what we are, but we pray in response that we would see you do the miraculous. And Lord, I also pray, and, and, it, and pray with me for this, that Lord, you'd give us compassion back. Father, take us out of, if there's a, a, a numbness in us, I pray you'd give us our compassion back. Give it back to us, Lord, to honor you, to serve you, and to love people with all of our hearts. So take our five loaves as a church, as families, as individuals. Father, breathe on it and show us the miraculous work that only you can do. Blow us away, Lord. And we thank you for it today. I pray that you would move us to action in so many ways as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.